You are listening to Moisture Festival Podcast. Welcome to the Moisture Festival podcast. I am comedy stunt performer Matt Baker. And I am comedy magician Louis Fox. We are both performers at the Moisture Festival. The Moisture Festival, if you're unfamiliar, is a four-week festival celebrating variety arts in the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle. It is the largest festival of its kind in the world and features some of the best entertainers and comedians working today. The festival happens in the months of March and April, and not only do they have world-class variety acts, the Moisture Festival also hosts a week of burlesque shows. If you're listening to this during the festival, be sure to buy your tickets now, because 95% of the shows sell out. You can get tickets to all the shows by visiting the website moisturefestival.org. On today's Moisture Festival podcast, we come to you from Berkeley, California, where we are joined by the fantastic Nancy Levidow. Yes, we chat with her about performing in the girl circus, her work as a private investigator, and of course, how she got involved in the Moisture Festival. Yeah, it's a fantastic interview with lots of great stories. Let's get to it, Louie. On today's program, we have Nancy Levidow. She is the administrative director at The Well Group, the world's oldest online community. She was on the board of directors for the New Old Time Chautauqua and is a volunteer and overall amazing friend to the Moisture Festival. Thanks for joining us, Nancy Levidow. Welcome to the studio in Berkeley, California. AKA room 316 (laughs) at the Holiday Inn Express. So what exactly is The Well Group? Okay, well, it's colloquially known as The Well, and it is the world's oldest online community. It's, so it's an online um, community of people that discuss things with each other, and it was created in 1985, which predates The Web yeah. by about seven or eight years, because The Web kind of came into popular usage in 1992-93, but... The Well was created in 1985. In many ways, it was an outgrowth of the Whole Earth Catalog Mm -hmm. because a lot of the same people that were prominent in that kind of created The Well. Um, Home computers were sort of just starting out and, you know, bandwidth was getting to be a thing. And at that point, mostly only universities offered uh, email addresses. And so people were just sort of figuring this thing out. There were a few community efforts in different places Around the world, uh, there was community memory and there there were other kind of outposts of activity besides Usenet. But the well came into being in um, 1985 and has been going strong ever since. So it's a subscription-based thing. People pay money to log in and see text only and talk to each other. Wow. So what sort of conversations happen on the well? Everything you can possibly imagine. we, they're, it's divided into discussion areas that we call conferences, and within each conference are 
many, many, many topics. So um, music, and because music is so big, there are separate conferences for things like jazz or popular music or classical or this or that or rap or whatever. Um, uh, parenting, homeownership, gotcha. um, lots of technical conferences, lots about politics, lots about media, um, wildlife, travel, a million, um, a million different topics about travel, um, uh, anything you can imagine. I mean, what movies, about TV, variety arts. Well, um, there's a theater conference. And I created a Chautauqua topic oh, in that. Nice. So, so there is. Yeah. Um, and Was there a, a discussion on that? Is there oh, a yeah. continuing discussion? Well, that's the interesting thing about the well is that all the discussions continue. So unlike a lot of the Johnny-come-latelys in the community space on the web, like Facebook or Instagram or any of these others going back to AOL, unlike those... Everything that is ever posted, written on the well, is still there. Lives forever. It lives forever, um, except for some of the early days when memory was so expensive on these old-fashioned disk drives that they actually had to reuse some of them. Ah. They had to erase them and... And, they conveniently and, erased uh, over so you, celebrities. you couldn't sell the first post as an NFT. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, but God, what an interesting topic of conversation. That makes me want to talk about that on the well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, because there's certainly discussion of NFTs. Uh, uh, but yeah. so it just it's a huge range of topics. I mean, really, you know, cooking and and bicycling and sports and all different sports wow. areas. There are also areas, there are also conferences that are devoted to different geographic areas. Certainly, a huge percentage of the people on the well are in California, but there are people from all over the world, mm -hmm. and there are people from all over the states and Canada. So, there are certain conferences, like there's a Northeast conference for you know Boston, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Maine, you know those people in a New York area, and U.S. South Southeast, and um, Pacific Rim, and a lot of expats um, who are living around the world, and then other just people. We have random people yeah. that find us. There's a a guy who lives in Poland who's a, a regular and people just from all over the world. That's lot, fantastic. Lots from Japan. So was it called The Well from the beginning? It was called The Well from the... Okay, so the acronym, it's W-E-L-L, -L, and it's a little too cute, but it stands for Whole Earth Electronic Link. Ah, that's very, like, late 80s. <laughs> yeah, so from, from the Whole Earth catalog. Okay. Now, 1995, man. Yeah. Now, when domain names started being sold, you're like, we got to jump on well. They, we got the, I mean, I wasn't in charge of anything back mm -hmm. then. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they jumped on the well. Yeah, I'd say maybe two or three times a week we get some unsolicited, hey, you guys want to sell your domain? You know, because, yeah. Who would, who would, I mean. <laughs> oh, healthcare companies. Oh, they would pay, that they makes they sense. Would yeah. pay, I'm not sure how much they. I pay. was thinking like a I'm like thinking, a well drilling. Company. I think three hundred and ninety-seven dollars. Yeah. No, well, we get offers. You know, I don't know. We get four or five figure offers all the time, wow. but it would have to be way, way, yeah. way, way, way. And you way, have to rebrand if and, ever yeah. that we would sell more than that. And how did you? What what brought you to us today? The Moisture Festival. Yeah. How did that? Um, how did you get involved in the Moisture Festival? We know, uh, you know, you are a, a flautist. I was. 
Yeah. Uh, am I saying it right? Flautist. Yeah. Sure. You you're in in the old <laughs> time. You gave him a. Look. I know. That was not, I didn't. That was not like a really a great endorsement. You could have asked me. My wife plays the flute. Is it flautist? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, I just go, you're playing your flute? <laughs> Again? <laughs> uh, and you were in the Finding Instruments of Karma band, and a lot of those members also were at the Moisture Festival. Is that how you came to be at the Moisture Festival? Um, I guess. You know, in a way, there, there was a lot of overlap with people that I knew from the Oregon Country Fair and from New Old Time Chautauqua, who produce and originated the Moisture Festival. So I think it just seemed like a natural extension of all of that, both of those groups. Mm. And how did you get involved in the Fighting Instruments of Karma Band then? Um, My first year at the fair was 1978. And it was pretty ragtag at that point. I mean, the... At the Oregon Country Fair. Yeah, the, the... Things weren't nearly as tightly structured mm-hmm. as they are now, and you could cheat with the passes, and you could, you know, if you didn't have a pass, you could hide out in somebody's tent and all that. Anyway, I, uh, I think I probably even had my flute with me that first year, and then it was okay. Well, you know, we're we're doing this band, so come prepared to play. Okay, and I did, <laughs> but I haven't only done the band at the fair. <clears throat> I was a juggler for a long time yeah. and I had a partner that I worked with we had a duo act and we actually were booked at the fair for a number of years that was in the early 80s the just good friend just, yes <laughs> juggling duo oh you did your homework yes <laughs> yes we did oh my god yes yes so you were booked at the fair yeah for a couple of years and with were you guys act. just good friends yes okay all right <laughs> no we were we were really good friends um and it, the, my partner, Larry Forsberg, actually lives here in the East Bay. Um, and we liked each other, and we got along really well. We met at a Jugglers Festival. We met at the IJA and um, got along really well. And, you know, the ability to get along really well with somebody in juggling is not unlike being able to get along really well maybe as a musical partner mm-hmm. or as a romantic partner or all those things. Like there's a lot of really good communication and we both wanted to do a lot more juggling and performing at that time. So we actually had a conversation about it and said, let's just not get romantically involved. Let's have a business partnership, a creative partnership and not do that other thing. And so that was like an actual conscious decision that yeah. we made, which was the right one. Juggling over love. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, when each of us, you know, had flings on the road, it was yeah. way easier that way. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the East Coast. I grew up when I was very young in New Jersey. And then my family moved to Maryland, the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C. So those two places I claim, New Jersey and Maryland. So then how'd you end up on the West Coast? I wanted to get out of there as fast <laughs> as I could. So um, I actually moved to Oregon first uh, after college. And I lived in Portland for a year. And I went to Berkeley for grad school. So oh, nice. I moved there and did that and then just stayed in the Bay Area. Can I guess when the juggling came in? Was it in Oregon? No, I oh. juggled before that. Really? On the East Coast. Yeah. And um, how did you learn? Where did you where did you see it? What caught your eye? Why what about juggling? You know. Okay. So the precise moment. I'm not really sure, although I think I can blame Eric Roberts uh, from Boston, maybe, um, Cambridge. Uh, but I, I learned how, and it, 
it totally captivated me. There was a small group of people at that time that would get together and juggle as a casual club. Um, down in lower Manhattan, in the courtyard of Trinity Church, which is on Wall Street, like the Wall Street, mm-hmm. Trinity Church courtyard, and people used to juggle there. And then there was a place, they let us use their choir practice room in the evenings or in the winters. And um, John Grimaldi was one of the main people that headed that up. He's still active in New York. And there were other people, and um, uh, Hubby Burgess and Judy Finelli mm-hmm. were actually active then and would meet people either in Washington Square Park or sometimes in Central Park. And so I just kind of soaked up all that stuff. And then I got taken to my very, very first IJA, International Jokers Association Festival, in 1977 in Newark, Delaware. (laughs) And there were, um, you know, now when you go to these things, there's hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people. There's a group photo from that event, and I think there were maybe 35 people, maybe. Is that a testament to juggling at the time or just Delaware? (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 juggling at the time because it was barely, I mean, now it's a really common thing that kids in school learn juggling as part of a PE program and people do juggling really extensively just for sport and for fun and for fellowship mm. and, you know, not intending it as a as a career or anything, yeah. just kind of to do it because mm-hmm. it's so fun. And there wasn't that much of that then. People mm. who were doing it were primarily doing it as an art form that they were going to pursue. So there wasn't a lot of these like casual sport jugglers and there was no, um, there was nothing negative towards anybody that was doing that. It just wasn't a common thing. It just wasn't common. Like it was really hard to get equipment. Oh, I bet. Yeah. You know, like it was almost impossible because you know, there was no mail order or anything. There was no maker somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Stu Reynolds made his very, very special props. And people that juggled in the New York area when you bought juggling balls, um, people that were there from that era will remember, we went to Tannen's Magic Shop in Midtown, and we bought lacrosse balls. Yeah. Mm. Those really, really, really heavy orange and white lacrosse balls, because that's kind of what people had. And, mm. and when you dropped one, it would go, ba-bing, 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 ba-bing. <laughs> you know, it would just like, bounce <laughs> halfway across town. And was, anyway, so it was like that era. So how did I, I don't know, I just, I got the bug. Yeah. I just got the bug. I had to do it. And when you guys started, decided to do your platonic juggling duo, <laughs> what, what, That's the better name. <laughs> platonic juggling. The platonic duo. juggling duo. <laughs> uh, were you were you doing street performing? Were you doing book shows? Was it uh, was this out in San Francisco? Were you touring the country? Well, at that point, I knew that I. I think so. When did I meet? I can't really remember when I met Larry. We met at a Jugglers Festival, and I think it was on the East Coast. But he either already, he was originally from Connecticut, he either had already relocated to the Bay Area or knew he was going to. And I also knew I was going to, because I think it was maybe the summer before I started grad school or something like that. So I knew I was going to be in Berkeley. And so we kind of continued there. And then at first, you know, you have to practice for a while before you get anything that seems like an act. Yeah. And we kind of did little festivals around the Bay Area. And then we just started doing festivals on the West Coast a bit. Um, you know, Portland, back in that era, had something called Seafair. And, you know, we traveled in this old truck kind of up and down the West Coast route, the Bay Area. 
uh, you know, Eugene and Portland yeah. and Seattle and Olympia. And, and how was the show? And, well, <laughs> you know, it, I, I think it was probably pretty good. I don't know. We were really big into big puns. We were big uh, into visual uh. puns, so crazy props and things. And um, we knew that a really good act wasn't about the skill, but that you have to have skill. It was more about character. And we were both real beginners at all of that. I mean, definitely beginners. Mm. But I think there was a kernel of something really good. So we used our name to develop an act that was about relationships and the oh, pitfalls cool. of relationships. So we would we um we were both pretty strong club passers and ball jugglers and then I walked on stilts and then he ate fire and, and um and was good on a unicycle and so we just incorporated all these things into the act somehow and then all these crazy props so we had stupid bad puns like we'd be passing clubs and arguing with each other about the relationship and you know i just need a lot more space and then we would back up as far uh, as we could cool. humanly go that's cool and it's kind of cliche now but you know in 1979 1980 people weren't really doing that and it looks really impressive if you back up however yeah, far you can go totally. so we would practice like how many What's you know, the, the, the the farthest amount yeah. we can go? I don't know. I never measured it, so I don't know. I'd have to eyeball it. I would it. imagine pretty far. I mean, at least as wide as this room yeah. from there to there. Which um, is the biggest room that the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> offers. I, I don't so. know. You'll have to measure it later and tell me. I don't know. But, you know, pretty far. Um, and, you know, we'd throw a, a big um, kind of joke alarm clock into the thing. And, you know, I'm running out of time or yeah. whatever. All, all these stupid things. So, you know, the puns were... Kind of stupid. Sounds perfect for the Moisture Festival. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it back. Yeah. I, I would love to see the Just Good Friends juggling duo reunion. How great would that be? I'm, I'm going to ask Tim. If that's if we're going to do that. We're going to text him right now. <laughs> and it, oh, Go ahead. There. I was going to say, um, so you were in Portland, and that's how you ended up involved in the country fair? Yes. The, the first year I relocated to Portland from New York City, I went with the fellow who was my boyfriend at the time. And you know how people talk about there being like a seed person that kind of pollinates all these different relationships and things. And he was that guy. His name was Joe Bueller. And a lot of the real old timers kind of remember him. He's a math professor. And there's a very, very strong overlap between the mathematicians and the jugglers. Um, and he was not a performer ever, but he was a really, really good numbers juggler and kind of a gregarious guy. And he was, um, on at the time, on the faculty at Penn State University. But he would come into New York and juggle. And we met and we kind of got involved. And then he was from Portland, and I knew, uh, you know, I was ready to leave New York. So I went to Portland with him, and he took me to my first country fair. Ah. Oh, and that was the summer that the annual IJA festival was in Eugene. So oh, cool. that year was, you know, this insane haze of uh, juggling and new people and altered consciousness and craziness. And it was the IJA convention, or I guess I think it was the country fair first and then the IJA. And it was like oh, three weeks madness. of like insanity. Yeah. And I met all the people that year. I met all of them. I met Tom Nadi, I met the Flying Carmazzo Brothers, I met Avni the Eccentric, I met, you know, like, just on and on and on and on. Yeah. I met all of them that year, because there weren't that many of us, and then, you know, there it was. Yeah. And so when Tim calls you up and says, I'm doing this festival in Seattle, 
with everyone you know. <laughs> Essentially a country fair <laughs> inside. <laughs> You're like, sign me up. I'll come and help in any way that I can. Yeah. Yeah. And did you do the first one or? I didn't do the first one. I'm trying to remember what year I came. When did, what was the first festival? First, it, uh, it is, festival well, it would have been 18 years ago. Yeah. But there's been, I think there's been 16. 16. Right. We'll get so, our fact checker on uh, it. Yeah. I know I was there in 2005, maybe four. All right. Um, and the first year I did um, admissions and, and ticketing and, yeah, I think the first year or two, maybe, I did admissions and ticketing. Um, did a little bit of door babe um, for the one of the years, um, the, the year that the burlesque was um, in, it was one year only in that venue. It was a big warehouse space, kind of, uh, I keep thinking it was along the Burke Gilman Trail somewhere, but I can't remember. There okay. used to be that that fire space like a block away on the Burke. Wasn't that? It was someplace Sandpoint, else, maybe? But wasn't Sandpoint. Anyway, whatever. Georgetown? I did yeah. different things. Yeah. And then at some point when, um, I guess I started doing stagehand stuff also kind of around then. But then for a number of years, I played in the band with the Sankopaters, with yeah. Evan Sprinsock. Oh, cool. Because he was also, at that time, the director of the Fighting Instruments of Karma. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got it in in this other band, too. <laughs> but So you've always been kind of a supporter of circus-type stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So like, it looks like you're involved in the girls' circus in Eugene, Oregon? Well, I was. I performed with Girl Circus for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Well, what is a girl circus? Oh, Girl Circus is this magnificent group uh, headed up by, well, created by Darcy DeRuz, founded, and I think she has now passed it off onto her daughter, Coco. But for a really long time, it, it's a, a group of everything from very young girls to grown women who perform um, at the Oregon Country Fair, may, probably other places too, but I'm never there except during the Country Fair. Uh, Darcy developed this whole program for teaching uh, gymnastics of all different kinds and circus arts and also leadership and all this great kind of, you know, bonding stuff with these young girls and women and teaches them performance skills as well as the actual skill acts. And they are a stage act at the country fair. Ah. And they compose her husband Dave and other musicians compose extraordinary music and then they have this totally killer band um and they weave stories through but they're they're an act at the fair it's pretty okay. awesome yeah it's it's a great show you're, you end up cheering and in tears and it's amazing it's and it's very powerful really powerful, it is very powerful because it's so much girlness um and it's just positive it's radiating it's like yes. yeah it's great yes yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's a, it's every time I've seen it, it's been a different show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, every it's time. totally different every yeah. year. Completely different. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of overlap from year to year with the girls that are in it, but there's also new girls every year mm. and other ones, you know. And so she, for a while there, she also, well, she still does, makes a point of bringing in other adult women. I mean, the focus is really the younger ones. The focus is definitely the younger girls. Mm -hmm. um, the the younger ones and the tweens and the teens, um, but there have been different adult women who have That's a maybe pretty cool kind of guest starred or something. So we had a little juggling act. Ah. Um, and so it was five of us, 
I think five, maybe six that put together for a couple of years. That's awesome. So you still got the chops. Well, I did then. I probably could. <laughs> I bet maybe. you could. I don't um, think it goes away. I don't think it goes away either. Yeah. I mean, even that, the last year I performed in Girl Circus was a while ago. I can't remember what year. But yeah, we put together, we had five women. It was Tash and Karen Quest and um, Maria of Reese and Maria. And anyway, all these other women. Now, uh, can you tell us about the circus festival in Cuba that you attended? Did I you can. attend? Did you perform in yes. it? Yes. Yes. How did that happen? How did that come about? Yeah. So, um, I and a number of other people had been very politically active in Central American support work, um, largely against whatever the activities were that the U.S. government was doing to um, overthrow the democratically elected, somewhat lefty government in Nicaragua. And um, I was also quite good friends with um, a juggler who, a juggler and engineer who you may have heard of called Ben Linder, mm -hmm. Benjamin Linder, who yeah. was murdered in yeah. Nicaragua by the U.S. backpunchers. And he was specifically targeted because he was such an effective person, both as an engineer and as a circus person. He was a, an old friend, um, juggler and unicyclist and all sorts of things. Anyway, in the, in the wake of his death, um, which was just incredibly tragic and profound, um, a bunch of people wanted to put together um, cultural exchange support stuff from the circus community in Nicaragua. And so this group, Jugglers for Peace, was created at that time. And different groups of people went at different times to Nicaragua, partly to revisit the places that Ben Linder lived and worked and played, <clears throat> including when the, the visits that I made there when he was still alive. He would set up all these juggling gigs in like poor neighborhoods and wow. would go and, mm -hmm. you know, and just, you know, perform, uh, yeah. obviously just for free and bring to, joy. to support, to bring joy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was regularly shipping him materials. Um, he was really good with balloon animals. Of course, you couldn't get anything there. Yeah. It was wartime, so it would be like sending these, you know, huge cartons of, of twisties um, down to Nicaragua for him to have and shipped his unicycle down to him. The customs is like, like we, we don't even know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. If there's drugs, they did a great job yeah, right. because <laughs> right. we have no there's idea. There's nothing in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Anyway, so when he... Well, and the cast was like, who sends drugs to Nicaragua? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point, Louis. <laughs> um, so a bunch of people uh, created this group, Jugglers for Peace, and I was part of that for a while and supporting it. And then um, Cuba is actually pretty well known for its developed circus arts, and they had this festival. Oh, and there were a bunch of people from the UK who were also involved in Jugglers for Peace, who were providing mm -hmm. support and traveling back and forth and everything. And somehow, because of our connection to the circus community in Nicaragua, we got invited to this Cuban circus festival. And the um, it was a really large international circus festival. There, the festival, I believe, was held generally every other year. So we went in 89. It was held most odd years. I think it had been going on for 8 or 10 or 12 years already at that point. And it had representatives from all over the world. And they invited us. And we said, let's go. And so it was a group from the US and it was a group from the UK. 
and we had to do all of our planning and arranging and everything kind of separately and agreed to meet there and somehow we had to kind of smush a show together um, oh yeah right um, and the juggler for uh, peace show yeah yeah and this was serious big time quality circus yeah and um speaking for the u.s participants I would say we were maybe not up to that caliber. Mm. You're like, I got and this alarm so, clock. Uh, <laughs> well, it wasn't even the... Our, yeah, I, was, I mean, we had acts, and the, the UK yeah. participants were, I'd say, of a higher caliber than we were. But they were actually professional circus artists. Oh, gotcha. Who, and we were kind of amateurs in a way. Ah. We, we, More political, uh, less... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had some skills, but we, we, weren't, we didn't have the showmanship. But they invited us. And you have to remember, 1989, there was no telephone between the U.S. and Cuba. There was almost no email. There was like a little tiny bit of kind of email. I remember going to some friend's house who was like a hacker and like, can you send some email to this person? And even just trying to figure out when we were supposed to show up uh, and trying to send telexes. Like the way the Cubans would communicate with us is they would send a telex to the folks in the UK. And then the folks in the UK would try to call us and tell us or fax us what we were supposed to know. It was very wow, convoluted and complicated. And espionage, you know, like. there are all these rules that the US had about you're not allowed to travel to Cuba, yeah. mm-hmm. except you kind of were allowed yeah. to travel to Cuba. And we got flights right out of Miami, which supposedly didn't exist. It is a misconception about that because that still exists. They, they, you know, it's a 45 minute flight out of Miami and it left at 2.30 in the morning. So nobody could see it Mm -hmm. happening except Mm -hmm. us. And it was bizarre. But um, anyway, it was fascinating. It was incredible. We were there for a month. Wow. Um, Most of us were. And as it turns out, the festival was longer than that. But we couldn't change our flights or anything because we were in Cuba and there's no way to contact yeah. the airlines. There was no way. <laughs> yeah, to, that, that is still and, the problem there, too. And, and people had connecting flights out of Miami to get yeah. back home to where they lived. And, you know, so we kind of had to leave when our flights left. But the festival went on. Was it just in Havana or was no, it, it was all no. around? Well, in a way, it was kind of like Ringling where they had, a, you know, they had the A unit and the B unit. Like ah. Ringling has red and blue and they have different routes. So the, the A unit kind of was mostly in Havana and the B unit toured around the country to the smaller venues and we were part of the B unit but then we got to um, got to see the shows in Havana yeah. when we got back there and we'd spent actually it was really professionally done it was a seven day schedule um, day one is the travel day to get to your place and you know lo- get to your hotel and get to the venue and day two was rehearsal set up everything and then days three through six or seven were performance days and the weekends you know three four shows the weekdays two shows usually at least usually and they had a that we played mostly arenas i think there was one outdoor venue we played mostly indoor arenas Mm -hmm. but like big arenas yeah and they had this completely kick-ass band think cuban musicians Mm -hmm. like insanely good and uh, the band leader and the MC, the compere, you know, an elegantly dressed man yeah. that would introduce the acts and everything. And we got there um, and they they gave us a translator, which was great. And many of us spoke a lot of Spanish, but you, you can't really do your job and translate at the same time. So it was really great. And he was really, he was wonderful. He was really great. Like we would, we would go in and meet with different people and um, he would say to us things like, um, I think that was a joke. You should probably laugh. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> I need that guy at my shows. Yeah, right? <laughs> but anyway, the, the band director came up to us and he's like, where's your music? I'm like, uh, uh. Music? Uh, like, where's your fucking charts? Yeah. You know, where's yeah. your music? Like, they're this, one of the best circus bands in the world you're ever going to find these totally seasoned, high caliber musicians. We didn't know we were supposed to bring any. Oh. Nobody told us we were so. I mean, this remains this point of shame for me that I didn't know enough to know that we were supposed to bring our charts with well, us. Well, I mean, when your messages um, are getting sent to the UK, then getting sent to Mexico, being transmitted to Canada, and then walked over the border to you, <laughs> I think it's. Uh... Well, but on the other hand, at this stage of what I know about performance, even if I hadn't been told, I would know you got to bring your music or at least tell them you know play this tune or yeah. that tune or what something. did you decide on what was we it? said please play anything you want <laughs> and they you know we were sort of pitiful they were, you he's know, like if only i was allowed to <laughs> <laughs> i would um, but they they really appreciated that we were there i mean they yeah. really did and um we had an act the the uk folks had more of an act with each other because they were already part of a performing group um but we integrated somewhat a little bit um and we had a big act that one of the um we had very good stilt walker with us um and had an outfit that wasn't exactly uncle sam but somehow they sort of interpreted that maybe it was a little <laughs> bit of uncle sam and one of the big dramatic moves is that he would fall back and we would catch him that was part of the act but there in a newspaper article that got written as a review of the show they kind of applied a bit of a political allegory <laughs> to that it was very funny to see what they thought but anyway the people were lovely yeah. it was amazing they, they were great um the the so the timing of that tour was really interesting it was after, so it's 1989, very, look up all the political events that yeah. happened that mm -hmm. year. It was after Tiananmen Square, but it was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Oh, wow. And everything was in flux then. So the other countries that were represented in that particular touring group were East Germany, <laughs> Bulgaria, North Vietnam, North Korea. What? Um, Nicaragua were these fantastic clowns, this father and son clown duo that I knew from Nicaragua. Uh, and of course they were there. Yeah. And, and they were both named Franklin. So it was Franklin y Franklin. <laughs> um, and they were, and, uh, and the, one of the Vietnamese clowns had his little trained dog with him. Um, who else? Poland. Um, you, you're catching a yeah, theme yeah. here with the countries. Well, that's what the... Uh, Mongolia. And... Uh, yeah, and then us, you know, the jugglers. <laughs> and then for the Peace United group. States. Well, and the UK, you know. Yeah. So that jugglers for peace. You know, basically the Soviet bloc countries, um, who many of whom have really highly developed circus uh, culture, um, like the the uh, the, you, the did, Bulgarians. They were an acrobatic group. They were like uneven parallel bars, and they were, if I'm remembering this correctly. I mean, they were so good. They were just phenomenally good at what they did. But they were the people that had just not made the cut for the Olympic team. Oh, wow. Mm. And so they were out on the road touring as a circus act. Wow. But they were like that caliber. Wow. They had maybe what just What a cool experience. The, yeah. It was, it was Jeez. wild. That's amazing. It was really amazing. And what was your takeaway from all of that? 
besides that you guys were hired to be the intervention to all these other countries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I mean, with some of us in our group had had some experience being in Nicaragua, and we were actually quite interested in the politics of everything and in the, you know, we wanted to know what was going on and the typical thing... The typical thing in Nicaragua is that they would take you around to meet with, oh, the women's brigade and the, the local um, community watch group. And, you know, there was a lot of like trying to either educate or show off or whatever you want to call it with the local efforts that existed that showed their system off well. And in Cuba, there, you know, we started asking about that. They're like, yeah. Nah, you know, we kind of had like on our day off, if we had a day off, we would go race to see some historically significant site. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they weren't like, nah, you know, they, they were not, it, they didn't see it as any of their job to facilitate any of that for yeah. us. They didn't oppose us, but that wasn't, and it was probably because they were the circus. Yeah. You know, they weren't, they weren't out to proselytize or anything. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we also have that you worked at the NEA. Oh, I did. Yeah. What, Which is, what is that? The National Endowment for the Arts. Oh, ah. okay. I, I had a, a, a fellowship there for, for in arts administration. Oh, cool. So I worked there for a short period of time, but they had a, God, no, they probably don't have any of these programs anymore because their funding was all decimated. But um, I, I worked in arts administration for a long, long, long time doing um booking and touring work and grant writing and mm -hmm. audience development for a long string of different community-based arts organizations in the Bay Area. I could list them all. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the middle of that, I became aware of this program at the NEA uh, for fellowships, you know, career advancement yeah. kind of thing. So um, it was like a, it was like four months, four and a half months, something like that. So I was in D.C. and I worked in the Office of International Programs. That's great. Because that was my interest. Yeah. And, and that was really interesting. So you were sending, you were uh, helping get grants uh, for performers that are going overseas or? Kind of helping to facilitate in international exchange programs. Gotcha. Of, of artists. Yeah. The ones that were being promoted by the NEA. Mm -hmm. ah. You know, what, what would be some examples of those? Not a lot. They were struggling <laughs> for funding. No, they, they really want, they had a director who really wanted to do lots of really good things, but they were kind of hamstrung. Um, in fact, this is embarrassing. I'm struggling to remember any of it. I remember her very well, the director. Yeah. Um, it was one of the smallest departments within the NEA. I think one of the things I worked on was trying to put together uh, an index, a directory of international festivals, so kind of data collection yeah. and dissemination and, you know, making, uh, making information available to U.S. artists. And some of what they did was in conjunction with other government agencies, so um, some of which people might have reservations about, mm -hmm. um, USAID yeah. and other government agencies. Mm -hmm. I can't remember any of the specifics. I haven't thought about it in a long time. I would imagine it was uh, more time-consuming than being on the board of directors for the new Old Time Chautauqua. <laughs> more time-consuming? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a day job. I went every day. So, uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's time-consuming. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Whereas the new Old Time Chautauqua, what does what the board of directors meeting look like for the new Old Time Chautauqua? 
Well, I've been off the board now for a number of years, mm. so I don't know what it looks like now, but what it looked like for the 20 plus years I was on it, you kind of look at what what your program activities are mm. going to be and what is your funding like and what's your plan for the year and where are you going to get the money to do it? And, and are you writing grants you for to, those? or There were there were some grants that were written, yeah. Um, d- uh, creating, I mean, there's no, there's no, well, for a number of years there was like a staff person, like a part-time staff person, but then there wasn't a staff person. So the board was very much a working board to try to mm. actually make the programs happen. And Chautauqua would do a big summer tour every summer to small communities in the Pacific Northwest, underserved communities, and um, provide a big, big vaudeville show and a big parade with a band and workshops. And also uh, a big part of it that got developed more in later years was making sure to do programming in institutional settings. So prisons, Mm. a lot of prisons, um, juvenile correctional facilities, also senior citizens' homes and hospitals and other, you know, free lunch programs and yeah. things like that to provide shows in those places and to do to do it all in smaller towns. So the board, you know, you look at things like who will put together this summer's tour and do we need to recruit somebody or somebody here going to do that? Where do we want to go? What what would determine yeah. why would we go to you know, this section of Idaho versus that. Yeah. How do you select what's the Alaska defining factors to help decide where, what community needs the new old time Chautauqua? Exactly. <laughs> well, what is something that you guys were looking for? Like, well, what are, we what tried to find places that where we had some likelihood of success yeah. because we either knew somebody or met somebody or somebody had been referred to somebody or we read something in the paper or one of our members maybe was like one time, one of our people was um, had a year-long position as a resource music teacher in a local school system in that area, and that kind of formed the basis for a tour in, uh-huh. in mm-hmm. uh, central Someone Oregon. has a cousin um, who had a stepbrother whose yeah. niece was... Uh, yeah, or there's like a really um, active radio station that promotes a lot of events, mm. and maybe we can work with them yeah. or whatever. And then there was also an emphasis on working with tribal groups and trying yeah. to participate in bring something, bring different things, bring cultural exchange and also support to to different native communities. Yeah. So there was a lot so when of you, that. So when you call up, you know, a radio station or, and you're like, hey, we're like a traveling vaudeville collective that wants to come to your community and <laughs> take it over and teach clowning, are they like, hang up immediately <laughs> is it, how, do, how do they respond to that that cold well, call yeah all all of the above but the ones that have some kind of spark to them or imagination um you know they'll listen and then they'll try to figure out well you know what do we have to do or what how much you know how much is it going to cost us and um what do we need and we i mean that that would be the way Ideally, it would work is that you'd work with a community or a whole set of communities for many, many months before you actually show up and you try to find out like who who is active in your community. Is it a 4-H club? Is it 
um, a radio station? Is there a cafe that is like a really popular cafe? How about your librarians? Are they spunky and, and game yeah. for doing things? Or is there a local chamber of commerce? Is there, you know, often in the smaller towns, there isn't a really big recreation department or whatever. But like whoever, wherever the energy is in that mm -hmm. town, you kind of go there and, and paint the picture yeah. and then you know, expand from there. Um, and then the, the group has been in existence for so long that there, uh, sometimes you would revisit a tour that you did maybe 10, 15 years earlier. You know, you go back, oh man, that tour, that particular, you know, boy, that group of towns over there, that was really pretty killer and that was a long time ago. Maybe we can go back to those places. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there was one... Um, a, a tour that we've done a number of times in far eastern Washington. So I remember we were in Tenasket and Twisp and oh, yeah. these towns. And um, the it might have been my first time in Tenasket, but the Chautauqua had been there many, many years before. And there were a bunch of people in the audience, you know, so our MC would say, you know, who remembers us from 1980, whatever. And Sometimes there'd be these little kids who you knew weren't born then, but they were wearing the T-shirt <laughs> that they had in tatters and rags that had been given to them by their aunt or their grandfather or mm -hmm. whoever bought it back in 1987. And, oh, my God, they've got that that's old cool. funky Chautauqua T-shirt yeah. on still. That's, that's fantastic. So you've done a ton of different things. You, you know, were at the NEA. You were a juggler. Um, Stiltwalker, too. Stiltwalker. At the fair. I was booked at the fair as part of the Stiltwalking group, Chicken Little, for probably 10, 15 years. And nice. did that simultaneously with the band. Oh, nice. For years until it became insane. And until yeah. the band moved down until, to... Until you can't Stiltwalk there <laughs> safely No, the, the problem was the commute because when the... On those stilts? When it's... the band relocated to stage left and the Stiltwalkers live up at Performers Camp... It's a it was pretty too far, far, great distance. Uh, it was just too far. Just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. So, all right, Stiltwalker, were you the president of Sasquatch Energy? That that was a company that my late husband founded, that one of several, that um, was mostly on paper, but had he lived, it would have become a full-fledged energy company. So we filed paperwork on it, but... Um, it didn't actually get a chance to... Was it solar, wind? Uh, hang on, let oh. me guess. Not solar or wind. Can I throw out four words? Surface piercing title generator. That he he got a patent for um, his surface piercing title generator that he created, and that would have been tidal energy. Sasquatch would have been uh, wind, probably. Um, he was a wind energy developer and also an engineer and an inventor and all these amazing things. Um, and he he um, came with me uh, for three years at the Moisture Festival, 2006, seven, and eight, where he stage managed along with me and everybody else. And there's a photo of him in the, the first Moisture Festival book. The ah, festival yeah, yeah. In the memorial section. Oh, that's, oh. yeah. I have to check it out. I have yeah. a book photo of his book at my house. Yeah. yeah, Tony. Yeah. So Sasquatch Energy. Sasquatch Energy. One of a, a number of companies that, yeah. that we created and filed paperwork on. Yeah. Now, there's another job that you had briefly mentioned when we were chatting before we turned on the uh, recorder here. You oh, were a yeah. private oh, investigator? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't actually a private investigator, but I did work for a private investigator. I've had a million 
jobs uh. over the years, different things. So a man that I know in San Francisco who um, also created and runs a, um, a treasure hunt company that I worked with for many, many, many years. So he would produce these treasure hunts kind of for fun and then um, started offering it as a corporate team building thing, which I also used to help lead and create and run and everything. Um, but yeah, he was, he is, was, and is uh, still a private investigator. And so I did some work for him on, on a contract basis occasionally. Mm -hmm. Like do, knocking on doors, getting, no. tracking down clues. <laughs> people, you know. people always think it's some kind of a stakeout it, yeah. or something, but it's not. It, I mean, there might've been, thing, I wasn't involved in anything like that, but a lot of it is, going to the county hall of records in whatever mm. jurisdiction and plowing through tons and tons of microfiche or requesting records and looking up whatever who owned this or that or the other and um the, a variety of things um i mean the, so here's this will date you at one point he there was a um Fortunately, I can't remember the specific details, but there was a certain make and model of car that had problems with, let's say, their carburetor. Mm -hmm. And I believe he was trying to find out whether there were people out there that would be plaintiffs in a class action suit or something like that. You know, we're trying to find people that had had problems with such and such. And how do you find those people? Yeah. Mostly they don't have their cars anymore. And you're looking for volume. You're not, you know, like, how do you find? So I started looking on online forums about cars and Craigslist ads. And, you know, Craigslist wasn't as much of a thing as it is now and all that stuff. And um, I was looking through, like, want ads uh, like old newspaper want ads, people selling those cars. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Just trying to figure out how do you, how do you get those people? Mm -hmm. You know, where's the needle in the haystack to get them? I think I eventually placed some notices in some of the online car forums asking for people and what their experiences had been. I mean, that's just an example. Should have subscribed to the well group. <laughs> yeah. All the people who had problems with their such and such year carburetors. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, we don't want to take up all your time. What did, did we miss anything? Oh yeah, probably a lot. Um, but no, it's just, I, I mean, you can look at it as, Oh my God, you've done so many things or, Geez, the woman can't keep a job. Or, <laughs> I, I see it as somebody who likes to keep creative and keep, you know, pushing themselves and finding new things to be interested in. And I, that's what I see. Yeah. That's what I see. Did you, Do you have a favorite Moisture Festival story? Yeah, but it doesn't involve stage managing. That, that, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, this involves a juggling act. Um, Jan... Uh, it's embarrassing. I'm blanking on his last name. J-A-N. Jan. Mm -hmm. Do. You have to look him up and tell me because this is embarrassing. Um, Jan Dom, actually, okay. is his name. Jan Dom. Okay. He, he had a beautiful juggling act, elaborate. Um, and he had... There, there's always a bit of uh, controversy whether 
acts at the Moisture Festival perform with live music or with tape music. Yeah. And, of course, the festival would like it to be live music because live music is just that much more charming and enchanting, and it's great when people are there doing it. But we also understand, having been both you know, in a band and a stage manager, I understand the issues that certain acts are timed really precisely mm-hmm. and particularly aerial acts and you just don't want there to be any change in the rhythm and so yeah. there are lots of reasons why people do their acts to taped music mm-hmm. and Jan was doing this act and it was tape music and he's really a superb performer and juggler but he was just having one of those nights where he was dropping and then trying to continue and dropping and trying to continue and the band that night was Mark Ettinger's band. Mm. And Mark's sitting there watching, you know, you're, I was, I think I was in the guest seats that night or something. I don't think I was stage managing then. But he, you know, we're all with him and supporting him and trying to, to like, what can you do? You're an audience person and everybody knows his tape's going to run out and he's not going to be done with the act because it was just a fluke night where mm-hmm. things were going Kablooey. And sure enough, he gets to that point, but Mark and his band were so magical, incredible musical ninjas that I swear to God, they just came in with their instruments and continued to play his music. And we all looked like, what the... People were looking at each other. Did that really happen? And they just continued playing until his act was done. It was this extraordinary thing. It was this thing of beauty and and phenomenal. I mean, that just gives me chills, just remembering it. And what was his face when he was like, Maybe he stopped messing up. Maybe it was. Maybe <laughs> no, it was no, 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 no. He just he kept messing up. up. He kept messing up. <laughs> no, uh, and and you know you don't in a way you don't want to talk about that because he it was just a real fluke kind of a night. Yeah. it was just one of those things, and it was so seamless that I don't think the audience had any idea. I don't think yeah. they knew yeah. at all. In fact, I think a lot of people who weren't in the audience didn't know. It just whoa that that was magical wow that's amazing well that's what's cool about the moisture festival is anything can happen you're putting a bunch of performers in a room (laughs) that have never worked together and you're sort of cobbling together a show sort of i mean i've showed up to shows that i'm emceeing and they're like oh we decided to put this person here and this person here and this person's going to now close and I need you to do time here. And it's like minutes before the show's about to start. And I'm like, this is crazy, <laughs> but that's sort of the beauty of it. It's typical of moisture yeah. that that happens. Yeah. In stage managing, I've heard people refer for the, that stage component that in some ways it's kind of the Olympics of stage managing Yeah. because in your typical theatrical show, you have, I don't know if there is such a thing really, but you know, like at, at act or something, you know, you have a rehearsal period that's four to six weeks and you have a script and you've got, you know, mm-hmm. lighting designer, costume designer and sound designer and all these people all working together. And then you've got a tech week and you run the show a bunch of times. And, you know, Moisture Festival, you've got about an hour, yeah. if you're lucky, to tech 13 acts and get all their <laughs> sound levels and get all their lighting cues and get all their props figured out and get 
all the info to the MCs about what they need about this and that, and you've got to tell them, okay, well, the changeover from this act to that act is going to be the longest, so you better have a big, long thing yeah. for that, and this one's going to be quick, and oh, and this one, you need to enter from stage right, that one, because we're going to be hauling off this big yeah. set piece out of here, or... That's you one know, of the things, I always feel like the stage crew is disappointed when I'm like, I'll just hand carry my stuff out and off, and they're like, that's it? I'm like, yeah, and they're like, you sure? I'm like... <laughs> Well, you're right. There's a little bit of disappointment. Like, we don't get to well, do anything. Well, they're not union. They're not happy when they don't have to do anything, right? They're volunteers. They're there to actually help. Right? And I love how, you know, most of the people on the crews and the stage managers, uh, and it's probably true in, in all of theater and performance as well, they have deep theatrical knowledge. Yeah. They're not just off the street, yeah. you know? So things like... Uh, you know, if you have to be handing props to people, you want to make sure you're doing it right. Or sometimes there's a juggler who's going to be, you know, tossing clubs off into the wing or something. Yeah. And the fact that you know how to handle those things and you're not going to screw them up, you know, helps. Um, one time there was a, a performer, I'm blanking on his name, um, who rode a tall unicycle and he was a juggler and he also played the violin and oh, did yeah, a whole yeah, bunch of yeah. other stuff. I and guy. he was quite wonderful. Um, he spoke English pretty well, but his native language was Portuguese. And I was stage managing that night. Uh, I mean, I'm sure many others also stage managed for him. And there was this prop handoff where he's going to be up on the tall unicycle and first he's going to do clubs and maybe he had torches. And then you give him the violin. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I was concerned that I get everything exactly right beforehand. So... Um, Xantha, Tim's Tim's first partner, happens to be fluent in Portuguese, and she was backstage that night. She was doing, I think, performer check-in or something. And I said, would you please come and translate? Like, I just really, I don't want to either screw up this guy's act or be responsible for his violin breaking or or something. Like, I really want to know. Like, I'm going to hand you this with my right hand, and then you're going to hand me this with, and then this first, and then that, and up here and down there, and, you know, where do I put it afterwards? Just all that stuff. You want to just So you don't want it in the spoke. (laughs) Or the chain. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we want to thank you so much for uh, making the Moisture Festival possible and just doing all the amazing stuff that you've done throughout your life. and Just bring, being awesome. Yeah, being awesome. This was great. This is, this is fun and interesting. <laughs> and a little daunting. You, know, you were fantastic. <laughs> Nancy Levendow, thank you very much. Woo! That's it for today, folks. Want to thank you so much for listening. If you want to check out more information like who's performing, how to volunteer, how to contribute, be sure to go to the Moisture Festival website, which is moisturefestival.org.
If you like this podcast, you can check out the podcast that Matt and I do called the Odd and Off Beat Podcast. Yeah. You can get on all of the podcast places, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and where we talk about weird news stories of the day. It's a good time. Yeah. If you like this podcast, you will love that because it is all things weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that has links to my personal page and Louis Fox's personal page if you want to follow what we do individually. So we want to thank all of the performers, donors, sponsors, volunteers who put on the Moisture Festival. It really takes a village to make this thing happen. Absolutely. We want to thank you for listening, and we want to thank you in advance for coming out to the Moisture Festival. So be sure to check out the Moisture Festival's site. They also have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, and a YouTube page to see how you can get involved and be a part of this year's or next year's Moisture Festival. We want to thank you so much for listening to today's podcast, and we hope to see you soon. See you later. Thank you for listening to Moisture Festival Podcast, and stay moist.